0: once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. When you read the parables of Christ, do you ever ask yourself which person in the parable is you? There are five different characters in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the Injured Jew, the Priest, the Levite, the Samaritan, and the Innkeeper. Which one are you? Dr. Kenan Vaughn, lead pastor of Harvest Church in Memphis, Tennessee, continues the series Radical Love. This message entitled, And Who Is Our Neighbor?, which covers Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Thank you for joining us today. It is my privilege today to introduce
1: to you Dr. Kenan Vaughn, who is a Memphis native. He'll be preaching with us here in just a moment. In um, and, and Memphis, uh, he grew up there, uh, became a uh, Tiger fan, is that correct? Right. So he pulls for the right team in Memphis, that's good. Uh, I do have a little difficulty, so I must read this to you. Um, it says that he graduated from the other school in Alabama. I, I said it in the first service and I had to repent of doing that. So so he finished there and then I went on to Dallas Theological Seminary to get his MDiv. And then from there went on and I fin- got his doctorate over at Gordon Conwell um, as well. 2006, he founded a ministry called Downline Ministries in Memphis, which is a ministry that exists to bring life on life back into the church. It's, it's done great things in the Memphis area. It's exploded. It's gone past Memphis now. We even have a, a campus here in Atlanta, which I'm privileged to teach at from time to time. Randy Pope as well. Monty Starks has uh, also been involved. We're a big fan of this ministry and what the Lord is doing. He's married. He's got four kids, four boys that also, you'll hear about in a moment, also destroy his house as well. <laughs> he planted, uh, in 2013, planted Harvest Church in Memphis with uh, really the hope of being a multicultural, multi generational church that's doing great things in the Memphis area. God has seen fit to bless that church in great ways. So while he is here blessing us today, and trust me, it will be a blessing that we'll get in just a moment, I want to pray for his church, for him, uh, that the Lord will bless them uh, as well. So let's pray. Father, thank you for Kenan, for the gifts that you have given to him, for the ways that you have used him mightily in Memphis and even beyond. And Lord, I pray now that you would open his mouth that he might speak the truths uh, that are from you. Would you open our hearts that we might receive that which is uh, from you as well. Lord, ultimately we're asking that you would help us to become doers of your word rather than just hearers only. Father, would you see fit to continue to use this church, though Harvest Church in Memphis? Um, Lord, we ask specifically that you would continue to fill him with vision that you've given him to bless Memphis through church planting, city reaching, and disciple making. So help them do what it is that you have called them to do. We thank you. We love
2: you. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, David, War Eagle. (laughs) I uh, really do consider it quite a privilege to be here with you this morning. On several levels, just in general, to be able to be here as a herald of the gospel is uh, one of the great joys of my life. But uh, even further, because the relationship I have with your pastor, uh, Pastor Randy, he has become just a great mentor of mine over these last couple years. Love his heart for um, the gospel and how that moves us to making disciples and life-on-life real, authentic relationship. And uh, he has been such a just north star for me personally. And uh, in our church plant, Harvest Church, which is almost three years old, uh, he has been a uh, He and you guys, Perimeter, have provided such a blueprint and template for how to really uh, build a culture around disciple-making in the local church. And then uh, certainly through Downline. Uh, Downline has been a joy to be a part of for 10 years now. I can't believe it's been 10. And uh, and there is a uh, there's a Downline Atlanta now. Ben Ambule, who's a member here, and, and uh, he and Christy run Downline Atlanta. And so if you've ever had an itch to really see how the entirety of God's Word fits together, like I want to know my Bible, Genesis through Revelation, and understand more practically how to make disciples, that's really what the Downline Institute's all about. And there's one here in Atlanta, various other cities, and it's available online as well. And so I would encourage you to check out downlineministries.com if that be a desire of yours, but just want to say thanks. It's really been a um, perimeter, uh, unbeknownst to you guys, uh, through the gifts, time, talent, resources, uh, wisdom of your leaders, um, David and Monty and, and Ben and certainly Randy, have just been a huge blessing in my life, in the life of Downline, in the life of Harvest, so thank you so much. Uh, do bring greetings from um, a beautiful sweet wife who's probably exhausted at this point because it's been a day and a half and she's been wrangling four dudes and um, and I'm not there to wrangle with her and it's, uh, it's all of a two-person job and then some. Uh, I was about to leave, I was praying with um, my boys, I guess, Friday night. Uh, I was flying out to come here Saturday morning and um, little Jonathan, he's my, I've got eight, six, five, and three and Jonathan's five and uh he was just really down and and I said Johnny what and he's normally like the light of of joy in our home and I said Johnny what's wrong he said oh dad I just gosh I I don't know I I don't really want you to go and and I said well Johnny I appreciate that I'm not gonna be gone too long he said yeah you are so what do you mean he goes mom told me you got to go to some other country and preach the gospel (laughs) and so uh so hello to the long lost country of Atlanta (laughs) Jonathan will be overjoyed to know that I can get to another country and back in uh, a day and a half, and so I'll be with him shortly. Well, if you guys will make your way to Luke chapter 10, that's where we're going to be this morning in in a parable that Jesus tells about our subject of radical love. I think a story is, is or a picture, I guess, is worth a thousand words. It's the cliche, and certainly a story is the same. And this story gives us a picture that I hope we will never forget. And uh, to be quite honest, it's one that if you've been raised in the church, you've probably heard, read, um, maybe even heard sermons preached on this very parable. But I'm going to pray that God would give us Um, fresh ears, if we could, to hear it uh, as if we were hearing it for the very first time, that he may teach us through this uh, story that he told nearly 2,000 years ago. So let's pray, and then we'll dive right in. Father, thank you so much for your word. Uh, Thank you for the truth that it bears, that brings us new life, that sets us free from our sin, free to follow you, uh, that leads us into joyful obedience. And uh, God, I just ask that this morning your word would go forth and would not come back void. Let it carve away uh, the callousness of our hearts. Um, let, it, let, it, let it help us to see in, in a fresh light how, how radically you love us, that we might in turn and in response love others the same way. Teach us how to do that, Lord. Inspire us this morning through your word, and I pray that as I would preach, I pray that I must decrease because you must increase, and it's in Jesus' name I pray, Amen. So uh, chapter 10 of Luke, verse 25, um, the the runway uh, or the on-ramp to this parable is an expert in the law who stands up amidst a crowd to test Jesus. And that word test is crucial because it lets us know his motive. This expert in the law, your Bible might say lawyer, he has the idea that he is the standard bearer when it comes to all things truth according to the law. Granted, he has spent his life studying every jot and tittle of the word. He knows it backwards and forwards. He's probably memorized the Pentateuch when he was a a young boy to to, uh, assume ultimately this position as an adult. Um, He's an expert in the law. That's what the text says. And he sees Jesus as this celebrity young rabbi with a great following. And so he's going to see what this young rabbi knows. He's going to test him according to the standard who he views to be himself. And so he's going to test him. And he says, teacher— he asked. Kind of comes in the guise of humility, but again, we've already seen his motive. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Another way to say that would be, what must I do to be saved? And and, and there's probably something, especially if you're a long-time perimeterite, if you've been in this church for some time, there's probably something in that question that kind of makes you cringe. Like, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There's something wrong with that uh, question, and I hope you feel that way, because there is. Because the easy answer is, there's nothing we can do do to inherit eternal life. In fact, the very essence of the Christian gospel is the idea that Jesus came for a people who couldn't do for themselves what only he could do, that only he could live a life righteous according to the law, meaning only he could then be offered as an atoning sacrifice for our sin, because only he is righteous. So he literally came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. What must we do? Well, we can't do anything. We have to trust in him who did for us what we can't do. So there's a flaw in his premise. And you'd think Jesus might respond by just kind of clarifying his theology, maybe lambasting him, as I kind of just did. But he's going to be much more gentle. He's going to do what's culturally appropriate. He's going to respond to a question with a question. And so in 26, he says, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He knows this man is an expert in the law. He knows the entire law points to our need for a Savior. And so he says to him, well, what does the law say you got to do? Because it does say something about what we must do. Here's what it says. And he quotes it. It's out of Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 6. It says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Points to a radical love. Let me just ask you this question. If you had to go before... The Lord and be judged according to, and by the way, salvifically judged, like you're going to either receive or be denied salvation based on your ability to love God, the Lord your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength perfectly all the time. Any takers? I don't see any hands anywhere, not even in the balcony. Me neither. Like like like, if if I had to do that, I could tell you I'd be disqualified a million times over. I'm not able to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, even for a a day. Like like, my my heart is a is an idle factory. I'm constantly producing other things to love and worship in place of God. Do I love Him perfectly all the time? Not even close. Reveals to me my desperate need for one who is righteous in view of my unrighteousness who could somehow take my place in judgment, one that has no sin that would become sin on my behalf that I might become the righteousness of God. Martin Luther called that the great exchange. I need a savior. I need a rescuer. By the way, we haven't even gotten to that last. Love your neighbor as yourself, whatever that means. And I'll just say this. Jesus hasn't told us who neighbor refers to yet, but if neighbor even means, uh, if it would dare to go so far as my wife, I'm in big trouble because I can tell you that I do not love my wife as I love myself. Maybe it's because we have four kids. I like to blame the boys for as much as I can. But, but I don't think they're the problem. I think I'm the problem. I love myself myself extravagantly. So it's there's already a, a hard standard by which I've got to love Catherine as well as I love myself. And so literally I'll find myself, uh, we try to pray, hold hands and pray before we go to sleep. And and uh, there's many nights where I just can't quite muster up the dear Lord and get into the prayers because I've got this kind of burden where I know I need to apologize. And that's so hard. I don't know why it's hard. I've been married over 10 years. It's still so hard to humble myself and say, hey babe, just before we pray, I just I need to come clean. I'm sorry this morning. I was in a rush and I was stressed out and, and you asked me a a question and the way I responded, I was short and I was impatient and and I was rude and and there was no reason for it and I'm just, I'm sorry, will you forgive me for that? I want to tell you guys, I have to do that over and over and over and over and over again to constantly live in repentance because because I don't love my wife as I love myself. And you know what the reality I figured out? Can't. Can't do it. Yet again, if if I'm going to be judged according to my ability to love my neighbor as myself, and if my neighbor includes my wife, and if I've got to do that perfectly all the time in order to receive eternal life, I am disqualified a thousand times over. You know what the law has just done? It has totally wrecked my view of my own righteousness. It has left me spiritually bankrupt before God. It has left me going, oh, wow, I'm far more of a wretch than I ever thought I was, and far more in need of a God who is gracious and merciful towards me in the midst of my sin." You know what Paul would write to the Galatians, he said in uh, Galatians 2, 21, he said, If righteousness could be gained according to the law, according to obedience to the law, then Christ died for nothing. You know what that tells us? The entire law, the entire Old Testament points us, the, the end of the law is to point us to our need for a Savior, to leave us on our knees saying, oh, God, save even a wretch like me. Now, Jesus says to him, what did the law say? He gave it to you, and Jesus said in 28, you nailed it. You've answered correctly. Just do this and you will uh, will live. In my mind, it's one of the great tongue-in-cheek moments in Scripture. It's Jesus with a little sarcasm. Like, that's it, expert in the law. I mean, you got it. What do you need me for? That's all you got to do. And then you can just see Jesus turning to walk away. And, and the expert in law is a little uncomfortable with that response. Something in him knows that he can't do this. He's like, wait, 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 wait. Je- Jesus, hold up. And it says in 29, but he wanted to justify himself. Like he can't. He probably knows he can't if he's honest with himself, but he desperately wants to be seen as righteous among men. This is the problem of most everyone who won't repent of their sin and trust Jesus. Anyone far from God, they want to justify themselves. We have entire world religions built on your ability to justify yourself, and he wants to do it so bad. So he asks Jesus a question, which is really a futile question, but he says, well, who is my neighbor? Again, as if somehow there'll be a category small enough that he could love someone else as he loves himself. But Jesus plays along, and in reply, verse 30, Jesus is going to say, once upon a time, he's going to give him a story. Which I think qualifies, it gives us the answer, it reveals in Jesus' mind what it means to love someone, your neighbor, as yourself. And here's the story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Man, this is the third service I've preached this. Last night to two today, still no reaction to that. Which shows us we missed the historical context a little bit. And that day, with the crowd gathered in tight and expert in the law and Jesus kind of talking and, and him starting the story saying, Let me tell you about a man going from Jerusalem to Jericho, there would have been a huge gasp of horror from the crowd. Because Jerusalem to Jericho was a 17 mile stretch known as the Path of Blood. Uh, it went, it, um, uh, went down 3,000 feet in altitude. That's why it says he went down this path. And it was the place, it was mostly wide open, Middle Eastern desert, and it was known as the place where the thieves and the robbers and even desert pirates where they hung out and preyed upon those foolish enough to walk this path alone. So I don't know where that would be in Atlanta. I don't know where the places are that you shouldn't really go or you wouldn't encourage maybe your wife to go or your kids to go alone. I do know where those places are in my hometown. And so I always have a kind of a vivid picture in my mind of what this looks like the path of blood, Jesus starts this story saying, this guy was at that place in your community. And so you're going, oh no, oh no. And sure enough, when he fell into the hands of robbers, that's exactly what happens on the path of blood. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And I don't know what it means to be half dead any more than you guys, but I imagine just kind of this uh, mound of flesh, that you can't really tell if he's dead or alive. I guess he's still breathing, uh, but he's bloody, he's battered, he has no ability to save himself. That's the man's condition when a priest comes by in verse 31. A priest happened to be going down the same road, Jesus says. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So for a moment, there's this glimmer of hope. Like a priest, the reason we're hopeful is because a priest ought to care. Like that's his job, right? He's supposed to care for people. So we're like, great, a priest, that's the only guy that could possibly help him. And for another reason, contextually, uh, a priest kind of has a king's ex to be on the path of blood. It was bad karma for for the robbers to jump a priest. Like the superstition of the day was you you, you don't you leave priest alone or you'll get what's coming to you. So the priest can kind of navigate this. He's okay to be out there and he ought to care, and yet he passes by on the other side. Now, I used to just kind of think growing up, I guess it's a, he's a bad priest. I don't know, and, and maybe he is, But but let me tell you this. Uh, In the story Jesus is telling, a priest coming from Jerusalem to Jericho is a priest that has just gone through three or four days of being ceremonially cleansed so that he can go and assume his responsibility as mediator between God and those worshiping God at his outpost in Jericho. He has hundreds, maybe thousands of people he is going to serve who are waiting on him. He has this one guy half dead on the side of the road that looks like it's beyond help. And beyond the fact that he's beyond help, if he goes and touches this man— defiles himself has to go back to Jerusalem three or four more days of ceremonial cleansing meanwhile all the the God worshipers in Jericho are waiting for a mediator so that they can present their sacrifice to the Lord so pretty easy rationalization to think I wish I could have been there earlier for that guy he's as good as gone these people need me and so the priest passed by that would make sense to those hearing the story but this next guy that comes by is a Levite and a Levite came to the place and saw him, and he passed by on the other side. Now, this one's a little harder, because a Levite's like a priest in training. A Levite would have the same ability to be on the path of blood without being harmed, but he has none of the requirements of the law that the priest has. He can touch him without being ceremonially uh, defiled. He's not going to serve in an outpost. Like, this is the perfect guy to help. Jesus said, well, the priest comes, he passes by, and the crowd's going, oh, yeah, but he has responsibility in the outpost of Jericho. A Levite comes by, he passes by, now the crowd's going, huh, why would the Levite pass by? Now, this one I was pretty sure was bad Levite. And uh, until I'm telling you, I was studying this parable. I was studying the Luke and parables, Luke 10 through 19. I love these stories Jesus tells. And I was studying this one a couple years ago, and the Lord spoke to me. And usually when he does, it's, it's a scary, convicting, humbling, repentant thing, and this was one of those. And I was literally asking the question over my Bible, why does the Levite Like, why is Jesus telling a story where the Levite, why does he choose to use a Levite as the man who passes by? Like, what is the point of this? Why would the Levite pass by the man in need? He's, He's a Levite. He's a minister. He's a priest in training. What's he doing? And you know what the Lord said to me? I don't know. Why do you always pass him by? And I just kind of thought, golly, that is too convicting. What's the next parable? Let's go to Jesus on prayer. (laughs) And you know, I just thought about how selfish I am with my time, my talent, my treasure, the resource of my life, how slow I am to really love somebody whose life is a total mess. My gift is quick. If you come up to me after service and say, I've got a quick question, shoot. But if you come into my office broken, beaten, battered, collapse on the floor, I'm, I'm, I go into stress mode. I'm like, oh my gosh, what, what do I have next and who's going to clear my calendar and how's this going to happen, what's going to domino, It's going to wreck my day. And I'm thinking, do we not have any other pastors available? Now, y'all don't tell the people in Memphis because that sounds terrible, doesn't it? That sounds like bad Levite. Listen, if I'm honest with myself, I come across people in need. Every, by the way, some look just like this. Like, there's a street corner two blocks from my house where these kind of guys, well, I don't know if you can say these kind of guys, but, but really beaten, beaten down, battered, bruised, homeless people in our community. It's, it's like the hangout spot. And it just so happens, as the Lord would have, it's where I drive through on the way to my home about two, two to three times a week. It's on my route. And so I, I go past these guys. And at this point, I know their faces. I know some, uh, most of their names and some of their stories. Because if the light's green, there's a little thing inside of me that goes, oh, you know, I can't really stop traffic. Oh, you know, but if it's red, then there's a deal where, gosh, I've got to, you know, I don't want to look the other way. That's clearly a pagan thing to do. I'm going to look at them. I'm going to roll the window down. I might say, hey, how you doing, Rob? Hey, Jim, are you doing okay? And they'll come over, and I might be able to have a quick conversation. All right, man, light's green, traffic. But sometimes I'm deeply convicted. Sometimes I pull over, sometimes I get out and I say, hey, you want to walk over and and we'll take a walk around the corner. There's There's a little spot where we can get a sandwich and talk and I'll kind of hear what's going on. But even then, if I'm honest with you guys, even then I've already made a decision that, you know what, I've got 20 minutes to blow. I can love somebody because I can fit that into my schedule and not uh, get home late where the boys have destroyed the house and Catherine's frustrated and dinner and yeah, and it's kind of wrecked the eating and she needs me too and they need me too. And I've figured out that I can manage this, can manage this guy's need, fit it into my schedule, make it all work. And when I finish that half hour and I'm driving home, you know what I always feel? I feel really good about myself. I do. I feel really good, and and, uh, to the extent that sometimes I drive home and I wonder, why did I just do that? Like, did I just do that um, to make myself feel better about my lack of compassion for these people, or did I do that because of the reality of my compassion, because I'm so burdened by compassion? Like, what's the truth? And when I examine my motives just for a minute, uh, I'm... I'm pretty dismayed at what I find. I I find a guy who is great at loving himself, but not very good at loving his neighbor. I find a guy a lot like the Levite in our story, but he's not the last character. Jesus says, you know what? Uh, But, verse 33, there's a Samaritan. Now, yet again, most most of you guys kind of know reaction Nobody's gritting their teeth, nobody's picking up something to throw at me. But if if you're in the crowd that day and Jesus says, hey, your priest didn't do anything, the Levite doesn't do anything, but the idea that this guy's going to do something, but a Samaritan, the Samaritan and Jews are mortal enemies. Okay? So, so the point of the Samaritan in the story is to break down any barrier you might have in your mind which justifies your lack of love for someone else. Whether it's an ethnic thing, whether it's a cultural thing, whether it's a generational thing, whether it's a socioeconomic thing, whatever it is that says, I'll love anybody, but obviously not my mortal enemy. Maybe it's a religious thing, maybe it's a political, but whatever it is, Jesus goes to the worst place possible and he's gonna make this guy the guy that tears down that barrier for us, that doesn't give us any, anything to stand on when we try to protect our self-righteousness or justify our self-righteousness and our lack of compassion. The reason they hate each other goes all the way back to 700 BC when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, whose capital is Samaria, and they put in pagans from all over the world to breed out the rest of the Israelites. And as the Israelites married these pagans, which is against the law, they began to enter worship. And so the kingdom of Judah in the south, they looked up and they said, you guys are not only Jews... You're not even Gentiles, you're half-breeds, you're idolaters, you're worse than pagans, you're Samaritans. And this bitterness existed. Southern kingdom went into exile, came back, wanted to rebuild the wall. The Samaritans came down to hell. They said, get away, we are not letting you help us. Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, a world empire later, the Greeks would be going to attack Jerusalem. Samaritans said, they got out and said, right that way, go down there and sick them. When Jesus is walking the earth, remember the woman at the well in John 4, when he comes to her and he says, uh, could you fetch me some water? Remember what she says to him? First thing she says, wait, I'm a, Sam- I'm a Samaritan and you're a Jew. We don't talk. That was her big confusion. John 8, when the Pharisees are really torqued off at Jesus, when he just, he, they've had enough, they can't figure out what to say, the worst thing they can think to call him is, you are a demon possessed Samaritan. That was it. The only thing worse than a Samaritan was a demon-possessed Samaritan. That's what they called Jesus. They hate each other. Jesus says, your priest did nothing. Your Levite did nothing, justifiably or not. But a Samaritan, the one who is the mortal enemy. Watch what he does. As he traveled, he came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. The word there in Hebrew is chesed. C-H-E-S-E-D. And uh, so we, we don't have an English word. We don't have an English derivative. It, it, it's a hard one to get our hands around, but it would be uh, kind of like um, God's covenantal mercy meeting his unconditional love in, in getting married. And it's how, it's how the Samaritan in the story, Jesus, it's chesed love by which stops him in his tracks for his mortal enemy in need. It's the way God loves his people in our brokenness. And I want you to see this. He feels this thing that stops him. By the way, he might have had a schedule. He might have had a family. He might have had four boys wrecking his house. But something forced him to stop. And it wasn't this little self-righteous justification. It wasn't that he wanted to feel good about himself. I'm going to prove it to you. It was that his heart broke. And he went to him and he bandaged his wounds. That's him tearing his clothes bandaging this guy's body, pours oil and wine that he would have had with him, carrying those to clean his wounds. Then he put him on his donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. Now, that's pretty radical, I would say, but it gets much more radical in this next phrase, verse 35. The next day. you hear that? The next day. He's still with him the next day? See, that, that that blows all my paradigms. I'm thinking, yeah, I've done that before until we got to the next day. Until it was... Uh, uh, such a, a, a life commandeering thing to meet somebody else in their need and serve them until I was so broke with compassion that it, it was a next day thing. I was with them through the night and the next day I'm still giving all I can. And look what he's given. He not only gives his time, he gives two silver coins, that's his money. And he gave them to the innkeeper and said, look after him and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense which you may have. That's the, that's the craziest line in the whole thing. You, he gives them a blank check Like, care for him, and when I come back, whatever your expenses are, I got you. That's nuts. Y'all nod with me. We all know better than to do that, right? What a fool. Let me ask you, is the the Samaritan the only one that doesn't realize how foolish? Is he the only one in this room that would not realize that he's about to get taken advantage of? Let me tell you something. The Samaritan knows that he may get absolutely taken to the cleaners. He knows it. He's not a, he, he doesn't play the fool. He knows it. Here's the thing, he doesn't care. He might care, but he can't help but move forward because there's this thing on his insides that won't let loose on him. There's this chesed love which controls him. So if he's taken advantage of, so be it. So long as this man is cared for. Jesus says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? That's probably one of the great softballs of your Bible. And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Notice, he won't say the S word. He's not going to do it. But he says, the one who had mercy. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Listen, I love these parables, I love this chunk of scripture. Usually in every story what I do is I kind of I hop into the protagonist's shoes and I, and, I, and I play the main character and I make application based on that. And I try to kind of figure out which character points to me, which character can I learn something from. But let me tell you something, the beauty of this parable does not come when you figure out which character points to you. I promise you, the beauty of this parable comes when you figure out which character points to Christ. And I'm telling you, one of them does. There's one character in this parable who comes to another man broken, half dead, and his insides burst. He literally feels this overwhelming, covenantal mercy love for the man in his brokenness, so much so that he makes himself naked that this man might be clothed. He puts himself at risk that this man might be cared for. He literally becomes vulnerable so he might have all of his needs met, and he says, I'm going to come back back and make sure all of your debt has been exhausted. Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan. Amen? I mean, he's the ultimate good Samaritan. And if he's the good Samaritan, which he is, then who really are you and I in this story? It's not the Samaritan, but it's not even the Levite. It's not the priest. It's not even the expert. Do you see us there in verse 30? The man half-dead on the side of the road. You want to find you in this parable? It's that mound of flesh, broken, battered, bloody, at enmity with God. And yet Jesus sees us in our need in open rebellion against his Father, mind you, And he doesn't just pass us by consumed with the religious thoroughfare of his day. He doesn't pass us by in fear of what it would take to actually do anything about our sin. He says, Father, take this cup. And if there's any other, let me drink. And when the Father sends word to comfort him through the angel, he says, not my will but yours be done. Fear won't drive him away. Religious thoroughfare won't drive him away. And you know what else? The busyness of his schedule won't drive him away. He stops. Because he's overwhelmed with chesed love. So much so that Paul would write to the Philippians. Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being found in human likeness, and being in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the death, even at death on a cross. That's some kind of love. And so he came for us, and he cared for us, and he paid for us, and he rescued us, and he redeemed us, and he adopts us, and he clothes us, and he says, I'm coming back for you. Chesed. He's the ultimate good Samaritan. And that being true, there's just two things I want to give you as Takeaways. The first is, this changes what it means, at least for me, it changes what it means to follow Christ. Again, if this is Jesus, if Jesus is one who walked amidst the brokenness of our messes, and the reason he didn't pass by, even in the inconvenience of Those who were mocking him, spitting upon him, would ultimately hang him on a cross whose lives made a mockery of the grace of his Father. The only reason he doesn't pass us by justly is because his heart breaks in compassion for us in our need. Now that's Jesus. His entire ministry flows out of his compassion. And here I am called a Christ follower. If that's Jesus, then what does it look like to follow Jesus? My whole life, somehow, I got in this religious routine of measuring my spiritual maturity and measuring what it meant to follow Christ merely in vertical devotion, and this parable shreds that. You cannot think about following Jesus merely in terms of your faithfulness to your quiet time. You can't. It's not how... uh, Uh, faithfully you give to the church or how many uh, committees you're involved in or, or how many years you've been in a journey group it's not even how many verses you've memorized how do I know this expert in the law's got the whole thing memorized his problem is he doesn't have any compassion and the whole story is a rebuke against the religious Pharisee who doesn't know how to love radically I'm telling you, we're in danger on this. Bible Belt Christianity is in danger on this. But we cannot measure what it means to follow Christ by anything less than our ability to feel chesed and respond joyfully by laying our lives down. That others may know the love of God. They may not receive him, but that they may know his love. I I can't possibly profess that I know how God feels about us or loves. I've never experienced any kind of emotion that deep, and I, don't, and I never will. But as close as I've ever felt to understanding chesed, I believe, is when I was 16 years old. My father had brain cancer, and in his dying months, it was hard. He was my best friend. I have two sisters. Dad and I were particularly close. And as he was dying, that was the, uh, uh, the most gut-wrenching months of my life. And one morning, my, uh, I got called into the office, And uh, my mother's friend was there, her eyes were swollen red, Uh, she was going to take me home. I knew without any words being spoken that this was going to be the day my dad was likely going to die and I got in this car. And I remember sitting on the edge of the seat as we made the seven minute drive from my high school to my home. And I had one hand on the dashboard, and I had one hand on the door handle. And as we pulled in my driveway and up, I remember op- swinging that door. Before that car stopped rolling, I jumped out, left my bag, jumped out, ran inside the house, ran through the downstairs, around the banister, up into my father's room on the right, and I got in there, and dad was just struggling to find each breath. Like his whole body was shaking, and he just, it was like he couldn't find the air. And I ran up to his bedside. I had my mother there and one of my sisters, and I grabbed his hands. And inside of me would be what I would tell you was an inexpressible feeling. There was a desire in me if there was any way I could possibly bring comfort into his suffering. Like I had little ability to do it, I poured out how much I loved him, I prayed over him, I spoke to him, but everything in me just wanted to comfort him in his suffering. It was as close as I've ever felt to chesed love. In Philippians 2, we know that Jesus did not come from heaven to earth in a vehicle but if he had, I've got a vivid picture in my mind that he would have come down with one hand on the dashboard, one hand on the door handle, on the edge of the seat, literally could not wait to get to earth. And the moment he got here, incarnated as a babe in a manger, he exploded onto the scene in a ministry that was moved by compassion, that was literally catalyzed by his compassion for those who had no ability to save themselves. Even in their mockery of his very life, his father and the gospel, he couldn't pass by because his heart broke in compassion and chesed love drove him to give his life away and at the end of his ministry before he ascends to the father he says to the disciples in a nutshell now you go and you do likewise and if you're like me you look at Jesus and you say I can't can't do it I can't live like you lived and I can't love like you loved there's just too much me and Jesus was one step ahead of you Said, no, 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 listen, I will go with you. And he breathed on them. And the Holy Spirit of God literally inhabits us. And let me tell you why the Spirit of God inhabits us. It's so that we can see what he sees. It's so that we can feel inside of us what the Lord Jesus felt inside of him when he saw you and I half dead on the side of the road. We see it and now we feel it. And following Christ must not be measured in anything less than how we respond to the chesed love of God within us. To love radically those in need in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your family, whose lives are as broken and messy as yours. That's following Jesus. And I can give you one more, I think this changes why we follow Jesus. You know, if the story had kept going, just, just if we had had one more paragraph, I think it would have gone something like this. And the Samaritan awoke to his disbelief that he once was dead, but now he was alive. And he shouted out to the innkeeper, innkeeper, innkeeper. And the innkeeper came and he said, hey, uh, how, how, can, how can I help you? He said, innkeeper, I don't know what's happened. Last night I was on the path of blood. My wife said I shouldn't. I know I shouldn't, but I was out there and my worst nightmare happened. I got jumped and they began kicking and cursing and I went down and I knew my life flashed before my eyes and then all of a sudden it went dark and I thought for sure I was dead. And now here I am and I'm very much alive and my wounds are tended to and there's someone caring for me hand and foot. What has happened to me? Don't you know the innkeeper would have said, well, you were dead and now you're very much alive. And it was the it was the very one who you call your enemy, who rescued you. What are you talking about? It was a Samaritan. A what? A Samaritan gave his life for yours. Where is he? I don't know. He's gone. Will he be back? Yeah. Matter of fact, he will. He owes me some money. Did he say when he's coming? No, he didn't say. But I suspect it'll be real soon. You're laying there, wounds healed, life from the dead. You know what you're thinking when you hear that the one who saved your life, he's coming again for you real soon? You know what you're thinking? From that day until the day you meet him face to face, here's the question running through your mind. How in the world do I thank the one who has saved my life? and the words of Jesus are meant to just echo in our ears. Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. I'm convinced that the point of this parable is not that we identify with the Samaritan and feel good about ourselves. Think of all the good we've done. It's not that we Identify with the Levite and the Samaritan and feel bad about ourselves. Think of all the missed opportunities. I don't even think it's that we identify with the expert in law and just feel shame for always wanting to be righteous amidst our peers and even ourselves in our own eyes. I'm convinced that the point of this parable is that we identify with a man helpless, broken, battered, wretched, in need. And we're overwhelmed by a God who stopped for us. Who couldn't pass us by because he was controlled by chesed love for you and I. And so he loved us radically to the point of the death on a cross. And so we go and we love radically those in need. Because that's how he loved us. Amen? Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you that in the midst of not just our brokenness, we weren't just sad cases seeped in sin. Uh, We were defiant. We were rebellious. We reveled in sin. We rejected truth. And somehow, even in that state that hopeless and nasty state, you felt a compassion that led you literally to lay your life down amidst our mockery to the point that as they hung you on the cross, you said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's radical, Lord, in your love for us. Lord, we'll never love like that unless we learn to be surrendered to your Holy Spirit that fills us that is still compelled by compassion towards the man in need. Let us be so surrendered that we could literally be tangible expressions of your love in our homes, in our communities, in our places of work, in the gyms we work out in, in this very church. Let us love, learn to love radically because, Lord, that's how we've been loved. And we thank you for your love. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen